Our scripture will be from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with the pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also of ourselves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor, our labor and toil we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers." For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God and opposed all mankind, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But... God's wrath has come upon them at last. This is the word of the Lord. I am convinced if Paul and Silas, whom we met last week as we discussed the beginnings of the church at Thessalonica, I am convinced if they were to uh, be interviewing for a position uh, in churches in America today that most likely they would not get too far. As a matter of fact, if you look at what is happening here in this text, Paul opens up by saying, you know uh, how we uh, were shamefully treated at Philippi. Philippi is just a a few miles inland from uh, Thessalonica. It is a a city where the... uh, the, Paul and Silas went, and when they went, God blessed them. A woman named Lydia came to Christ, and God began to work there. But there was a a girl who was possessed by a demon, and that evil spirit that possessed her recognized in Paul and recognized in Silas God, that God was at work in them. And so that spirit that worked in her called that out and began to follow Paul around and say, these are men of the Most High God. 
Acts chapter 16 tells the story. Paul became quite annoyed uh, with this demon, not with the girl, with the demon, became quite annoyed with her. And when he did, turned around and uh, called that demon out of that girl. And when that happened, she was a slave. Her owners made money off of her demon possession. They were angry. They uh, set the city against Paul and Silas. And Paul and Silas are dragged into the public square. Their clothes are uh, ripped off of them and they are beaten with rods. It is a bad day for Paul and Silas as they are beaten there publicly. They then are thrown into prison and when they are, uh, the jailer is told, put them in the inner cell so that they cannot escape. Uh, They are uh, definitely to be guarded. Paul and Silas land in jail, and what do they do? They're sitting there in, in jail, and they're, they're whining and complaining and aggravated and frustrated that this uh, thing that God had called them to and they had forsaken their life wasn't working out. No, that's not what happened. They land in jail, and when they do, uh, they begin to pray, uh, the scriptures say, and they begin to sing. In the middle of all of that, they aren't whining, they aren't complaining, their their backs are bleeding uh, from the beating and they begin to sing. I just imagine that if that had happened today and Paul and Silas had had maybe our hymns to draw from, this is the hymn that came to my mind that, that Paul and Silas perhaps would have sung, Great is thy faithfulness. Oh God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. And Acts 16 says, everybody listened. Like everybody in the jail, listen. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. And they heard that. Who are these guys? They're bleeding. They're naked. They're humiliated. They're shamed. They're singing. Well, evidently God liked that. Along comes an earthquake, rattles the foundations of the prison, and when it does, their shackles are broken. They're free to go. The Philippian jailer comes in, uh, fearing for his life, has a sword. He's going to fall on it and kill himself. And they said, no, 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 no. We're all here. No one is left. No need to do that. And uh, Paul and Silas lead that man to Christ. He takes them home. They wash, uh, his family washes their backs. Paul and Silas lead the entire family to Christ. Next day, word spreads of what has happened and that this Philippian, that, that, that this uh, 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 Paul and Silas were Roman citizens against the law to be ever treated like that. And when that happened, uh, they wanted to quietly send them out. I love Paul's response. Not like that, he says. Uh, you publicly beat us, you'll publicly apologize to us and so they send them on their way that's how they show up in Thessalonica 
their reputation preceded them. Last week we discovered through the, the evidences that church is church. And this week we look at three prerequisites for pastors. Uh, the tables turn now and Paul says, this is who you were. And this week he says, this is who I was. And so last week we talked about us as church. And this week we'll talk about uh, me as pastor. If, if you are sitting there to evaluate my service as a pastor, what might you evaluate? And here is what Paul says. Prerequisite number one, boldly declare the gospel. Boldly declare the gospel. Uh, he, he says, you know what happened in Philippi. Um, we have boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict He's talking about now here in Thessalonica. That happened in Philippi, but you may recall from last week, Paul was in Thessalonica only three Sabbaths when the town got in an uproar and they had to sneak him and Silas out at night. Boldly declare the gospel. This phrase, bold to declare, is one word in the Greek. It's used nine times in the New Testament, eight times with Paul, one time with Apollos, every single time it is used in connection with the communication of the gospel. So it begs the question, why must there be boldness? We look at it then and we find a cultural reason. In Paul's day, when you came to Christ, you lost Judaism, you lost family ties, you lost your business, you lost your, your comfort zone because to follow Christ was not to follow Judaism. And it was costly. Three weeks ago this day, when we were in Africa, there was a baptism that day in that village. Our team noticed something, and afterwards in our debriefing, we talked about it. Here, when there's a baptism, we heard Sylvie's testimony. We heard Happy's testimony in the earlier service. Uh, when we baptize folks here or in the creek, uh, we applaud every single time, don't we? As soon as the baptism is over, it's just natural to applaud this person for being baptized. But we noticed in the village that day, as this young woman stepped into the waters of baptism outside... In this large uh, rectangular uh, concrete trough that she wasn't smiling at all. There was not nary a smile on her face. She was somber and the people around her were somber. And when she came up out of the water without thinking, those of us from Grace applauded. And they followed us in that. They, they, it seemed awkward to them. We regretted having done it afterward. We just didn't think. It just comes natural to us to do. As we began to discuss the possible reasons that this young woman would walk into the waters of baptism without a smile on her face, it dawned on us two significant things. One, she was walking away from animism. 
Animism is uh, the, the, the belief in the spirits, the witch doctors, the wearing of the things around one's uh, arms to ward off evil spirits. Uh, she had given testimony to that, how she had taken those, literally taken those things off. But secondly, she was walking away from Islam. 91% of Senegal is Muslim. She was walking away from Islam. And as such, would lose the respect of her family, the respect or love. Uh, she would be taken out of any will, any inheritance. At that moment, her decision to follow Christ was costly. It was costly. That is why Paul would say then, boldly, I, I boldly declare the gospel. It was countercultural. But how about today? Is it still? How about in America? Is the gospel counter-cultural? I love Tim Keller's definition of the gospel. He says the gospel is that we are so flawed that Jesus had to die for us. And we are so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for us. I'll, I'll tell you where the gospel is countercultural today. Uh, no one in this country likes to hear we're wrong. We love being right, and we love being right about ourselves. And the gospel is inherently bad news before it's good news. The good news will never be good unless it's against the backdrop of the sinfulness of humanity, which says we are so flawed that unless Jesus dies for us, there is no hope. And in our age and in our culture, we, we don't like to hear that. Oh, there might be something wrong with me. Uh, there's something so grave and so sinful that it required the death of someone to mitigate, to take care of. That's the first half of the gospel. We're sinful. If God doesn't do something, we're doomed. If you're in here this morning and you're apart from Christ, you're on a highway. At breakneck speed toward eternity. And my preaching to you this morning is declaring to you that, that the bridge is out. And that if you keep going, you will careen to your death in an eternity separate from, apart from God. In an eternity in hell. Apart from a loving God who desires the reverse, the converse of that. The gospel is that my sin separates me from God. The gospel is that I am so loved that Jesus was glad to die for me to take care of that. And today, that takes boldness in our culture to confront sin. It, it does. It, it is number one in a pastor's job description. Acts 17, 2 and 3, we discover what Paul did when he arrived at Thessalonica. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Uh, that would be the Old Testament, explaining and proving that it was necessary for interest in the Christ. The, not a Christ, 
but the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So the gospel is exclusive. The gospel says that Jesus is the only way. And so what does that mean? It means somebody's right and somebody's wrong. In a day when we don't want to admit that, in our culture today, somebody is right and someone is wrong. It means that Muslims have, have missed the point. So have Mormons. So have Jehovah's Witnesses. So have Buddhists. So have Hindus. Jesus is the only way he claims the truth and the life. And today, if I, as a pastor, proclaim that, I'm considered not to be politically correct. Boldly declared the gospel, Paul says, our appeal, preaching is always persuasive in nature. Was not from any attempt to deceive, not to please men, but to please God. That word deceive is interesting. It means to catch with bait. It means it wasn't bait and switch. It means we didn't come in and we didn't coat it, sugarcoat it. And then once you bit in, you went, oh, that's bitter. No, we said this is the way. Christ is the only way. And then you see what appears to be something rather distinct from that in verse 7. First is to boldly declare the gospel. Secondly is gently love the church. Look at this. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you have become very dear to us. Notice the emotional language in there. Affectionately, affectionately desirous, dear. Uh, when Paul uh, tries to explain to them his love for them as a church, he goes to a nursing mother. Paul, of course, had never had that experience himself. He, he defers to the opposite sex to somehow get at this tender love that he had for the Thessalonians. This tender love that he had for them. Let's think on that for a moment. A nursing mother. That child in that moment is at that mother's mercy. Now, we know that today, but, but if you struggle to nurse your own children, th- there are a variety of options for you today. Just, just run to Walmart and, and get some formula, and you can feed your child. But in Paul's day, Walmart didn't exist, only Dollar General. Uh, so, and they were everywhere then, too. Um, so in, in Paul's day, there was, no, there was no place to run and get milk for a nursing child. And if, if that child survived, mom fed him or her. The child was completely dependent on mom. 
since I've been at Grace for 15 years, my desire has been, and this is how I picture us. I seldom share this. Maybe never I have. But this has been my desire, that we would be a great labor and delivery unit for, for new Christians. That in this place, when babies are born into the family of God, we take them and coddle them and and love on them in their most vulnerable state, which is those first few days, weeks, months of knowing Christ. You know, as parents, when you brought home your, your child, when Wendy and I brought home Trent on December 18th of 2002, I mean, in some ways he looked old enough to take care of himself, but he wasn't. And we couldn't just take him and drop him in a bedroom and leave him. If so, he'd die. He was totally dependent on us. If we are going to be a church that continues to see, last year we saw more people baptized here than in any other year of the history of this church. Or if we're going to be a church that continues to see new people come to faith in Christ, we must have this attitude toward new believers that loves them like a nursing mom loves her children. They must become dear to us. We, we must view them. They, they are. They are why we are here. That is what Paul is talking about here. Affectionately desirous. It means totally motivated by love. My job as pastor is to gently love you. To gently love you. Our group leaders, that's your job. To gently love those in your groups. I just finished a book by by Eric Metaxas. Some of you may have read his uh, biography on Bonhoeffer, which was absolutely tremendous. This, I think, was published last year, and this is called Seven Men and the Secret of Their Greatness. He's got one that I don't know if it's out yet called Seven Women and the Secret of Their Greatness. A fantastic read. In this book, he tells the story of Eric Liddell. And when I say that name, some of you right away will know who he is. You'll see his picture on the screen. Liddell was a Scotsman who was an avid runner, a gifted runner, who in the early 1900s, I think 1923, ran in the Olympics for Scotland. It was in that year that he ran that his deal was the 100 meter. No one in the world was faster than him. Scotland had never won a gold medal. And certainly Laudel would be the one to run it until he heard. You see, God had gloriously saved and transformed his life until he heard that the race would be held on Sunday. And he said, I will not run on Sunday. The government officials, the Olympic officials, they, 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 they pressed in. You will win Scotland's first gold medal ever. And you're going to deny your nation of that honor and yourself of that honor so that on a Sunday you can go worship. Yes, 
Liddell said. And sure enough, he was in the city where the Olympics were held. And on the Sunday that uh, he should have been running the 100 meter, according to Scotland, he was in worship. He would later learn that a fellow Scotsman did not win the gold. Someone else did. But he was also preparing for the 400 meter. Everyone said he's not, that's not his race. There's a whole lot of difference in running 100 meters and 400. But it was on Wednesday or Thursday of that same week that he ran the 400, uh, broke records, won the gold for Scotland. And Scotland had their man. Or so they thought. That's where the movie ends. Uh, Chariots of Fire. They had their man, or so they thought. But God had called him to be a missionary. And he headed to China. Liddell quit running, finished his education, went to China as a missionary, met a, a young missionary girl, uh, so, so young that he had to wait quite a while to marry her. He eventually married her. Uh, she came to China. They had children. It became dangerous. Uh, Hitler began his dance uh, across uh, the the uh, Poland at that time, and things got terrible in China. The Japanese joined in. They began to threaten China, and uh, Liddell took wife and children to a boat to, for them to head back to Canada where her family was. And when he did, he looked at his wife and his children as they got on that boat, not knowing it would be the last time he would ever see them. He went back to his mission work. He taught uh, uh, children of missionaries. He worked in communities and he went back and Japan came storming into China. And when they did, they gathered up Liddell and 300 plus others, marched them in infamy through the city streets, put them on trains, packed them into trains and shipped them 300 miles to a block compound. It was a block large, built by the Presbyterians. They had very little uh, ways to relieve themselves facility-wise, rationed food. And there was Laudel, and there were almost 300 children without their parents because their parents were missionaries in many different parts of the world. And Laudel said, I thought this to myself, you know, My children are in Canada. They're good. These children don't have a dad. God, you have put me here to be just that. And he became affectionately affectionately known as Uncle Eric to those children. He taught them. They said that this pervasive spirit of peace and cooperation existed there at that camp as Lawdale just served God faithfully. One guy who got out of there alive said that uh, uh, he was without shoes, that he had worn his out, and Lawdale noticed and took his off and gave them to him. It was at the Olympics much, much later, maybe about 20 years ago or less, that they decided to honor Eric Liddell. And when they did, it was either Japan or China who came forward with the official documents that they had sent into that compound, his release paper. And when he received it, saying that he was free to go, he looked around and found a pregnant woman. 
And rather than going to see his own wife and children, he handed that release paper to that pregnant woman who went to the officials and said, this man has given this to me. And either the Japanese or the Chinese government, whichever it is, was astounded by that, kept the record of it, came forward. None of his family even knew he had done this. Laudell died of a brain tumor in that compound. The same man who boldly declared the gospel on a Sunday in 1923 gently loved people 20 years later. Such is the task of the pastor. Such is our task. As a woman nurses her child, there's this love, this desirous love that develops in us. So Paul says prerequisites for me as I served among you for pastors uh, today as we serve is boldly declare the gospel, gently love the church. And then the metaphor changes. It, it, It turns immediately faithfully encouraged the church verse 9 for you remember brothers our labor and toil we worked night and day that's faithful that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of god you are witnesses and god too how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers i shudder when i read that as a pastor verse 11 for you know how like a father with his children All right, so as a mother, a nursing mother, now it's a father with his children. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Faithfully encourage the church. Paul completely changes the metaphor now. And he says, boldly declare the gospel, gently love the church like a mother, and then faithfully encourage the church like a father. If you take these three words, there are a couple of things to note about them. Number one, they most likely shouldn't be separated and parsed out and try to figure out what each of them means. It's really the three ways of saying the same thing. Exhorting includes a encouraging, comfort, and charging, imploring. This was the task of dads in that day. And it is uh, the, the, the appeal that Paul makes. Moms were more nurturing, dads were more directing. And, and Paul says there was that too from us. We had to speak the truth in love. Uh, we, we nudged you along. We charged you when you were veering off course. Faithfully encourage the church. It is that task of the pastor who when in a corporate sense, he sees the church veering on his knees And through his mouth preaches to bring the entire body back. It is the task of the pastor who sits in his office face to face, one-on-one or one-on-couple, and hears things and says, all right, 
this must change. Can you see the error of your ways? Do, do, do you get this? And takes the word and opens it and course corrects, redirects. On more than one occasion, I have looked at people here at Grace and gently, like a nursing mother, have said, you know, I, I don't know what's coming next, but here's my promise to you. We'll go through this together. We'll cry together. We'll walk through this together. On more than one occasion, I've done that. But then on more than one occasion, I've looked at someone in my office and said, listen, you have many friends right now. I'm not trying to be on that list. I'm your pastor. And I'm speaking to you as your pastor. And you're going to have to listen to me as your pastor. This is not a popularity contest right now. That is necessary. If you're a parent, you know this, right? You need the balance of nurture. And then if you've ever parented teenagers, you've looked at them and said, listen, I don't care what your friend's parents do. I'm not their parent. Right? How many times have you said that? I'm not their parent. They can do whatever they think is the right thing to do. But I'm your daddy. I'm your mama. And this is how it goes in my house. This is how my rules are, right? That's the the firmer side. And that's the balance. A pastor who is only the latter is hard. A pastor who is only the former is soft. Boldly declare the gospel. Gently love the church. Faithfully encourage the church. Therein lies my annual review, right? I I want to make you aware because sometimes I think perhaps you aren't of how God allows us to extend that beyond here. I have the privilege of mentoring a group of young ministers, pastors, staff leaders in different contexts. We met this week. We meet 10 out of 12 months a year. All day long on Thursday, we met. This morning, I text maybe 10 or 12 of them praying for you today as you preach, praying for you as you lead. You as a church free me to do that. You, you free me, you give me some space to where that I can go and sit with them and invest in their lives And you don't see the fruit of it directly. I I can report 
just down the road, we could walk there at Greenlee Baptist, is Jonathan Tipper. Uh, Jonathan and I have gotten to know each other in his six months or so here in the county. Jonathan has never pastored before. He's a super guy. And just this morning, I flew him a text, spent all day with him, lunch with him Wednesday, all day with him and mentoring on Thursday, just this morning, sent him a text praying for you today, Jonathan. Is it in the best interest of grace that Greenlee thrive? Well, yes. We're on the same team, doing the same thing, reaching lost people who exist by the thousands in this county. Andrew Walker, on staff here, less than a year ago, we sent Andrew and about 40 people to the east side of town to revitalize a church. Attendance had dropped to 10. By the way, you can pray for Andrew's little girl, Leah, had a seizure this morning. So you can pray for them. But we, we sent Andrew, who was on staff here, over there. He's worked part-time here and uh, more time there now since May of last year. Last Sunday, their attendance at East Marion, 109. Isn't that wonderful? God working, raising up, drawing people to himself on the east side of town. You free me to invest. And God works. And the kingdom grows in ways that I don't think you and I, if you've been along for this ride for a long time, imagined. The other way is on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday morning at 8 o'clock, I have a privilege to teach. I teach preaching at Montreat College. And uh, I have a privilege, I taught hermeneutics last semester, to pour into young, young people going into ministry. Wow. How neat is that? To see God raise them up and send them out and use them mightily. Just this week, I received a transcript of a book that is being published by Dave Hickman, who served here and led our college ministry and I received a transcript of this book, uh, the, the beta copy. He said, I just want you to read. And I'm on chapter 6. So good so far. God works in this way. Uh, what is the result? Look at this. If you write in your Bibles, underline, walk in a manner worthy of God. You know, all of us will come and go and we'll be on the scene and off and God doesn't need any of us. So all of this directs beyond us to God. We walk in a manner worthy of God. God. It results in a change in the way we live. Our praise team is going to come and we're going to sing a song. And this song says to us, if this is going to continue to happen... This has to be our slogan, our mantra. This has to be it. 
Secondly, I would say to you this morning, if you walked in here and before this worship service did not know Christ and you prayed that prayer at the beginning, God, show yourself to me. Why, why is it that we do what we do? And, and, and Paul would say, we love you like we love you uh, because of Jesus Christ. Who, who died, as I said, at the outset of the sermon on the cross for your sins. And if today you are lost without him and you want to know him as your savior, I'll be here. The song fits you as well. Let's stand. Let's worship. Let's sing this as worship to the Lord.